American girls and American guys will always stand up and salute. We'll always recognize when we see old glory fly. There's a lot of men there so we can sleep in peace at night when we lay down our heads. My daddy served in the army, we lost his right eye, but he flew a flag out in our yard. Till the day that he died, he wanted my mother, my brother, my sister and me to grow up and live happy in land. Welcome back to The Real Voices of the Game. I'm Dave D'Agostino. Episode 449 in our network. I'm joined here today by the star of this show, Jim Colonel, and this is The Arms Race. Want to thank a few people before we bring Jim on. I got a stack show for you today. This is the back end of a Tuesday doubleheader. Started off by coaching Kern and earlier. Just want to thank our bat company, Jaw Bats, RVG at checkout. will get you a percentage off of their maple bats. My son Tanner's using his M110 model, lefty and righty, loves it. Our very own Jeff Fry, is she gone? Double to the pole side in fantasy camp um, with his. I think he's got the C271. Loves that one as well. So I encourage you guys to take a look at Major League Baseball's newest certified bat jaw bats. I also want to thank Millions, our marketing partner. The merchandise dropped yesterday, so you can get uh, men's and women's t-shirts, men's and women's hoodies, and our baseball caps are on there. So I encourage you guys to go look at that. I don't know if it's quite a great Valentine's Day gift. Valentine's Day is tomorrow, but hey, you never know um, with the real voices of the game. Piece of merchandise there. And then uh, voting has been cast. All It's been shut down, closed out for the two podcasts of the year awards we're up for, so we'll find out later on this week if we won. But just, uh, again, want to thank our 67,000 subscribers for uh, following us, supporting us enough to get us recognized with some of the elites of the elites in the podcast world. So with that, Jim, welcome back to your show. Um, Really appreciate the information that you provide to the audience every week. I learned too. I've got a legal pad drawn down the middle, stuff for the show and stuff for Dave. So I pick up new stuff every week as well. <laughs> we're we're all looking to learn, me included, right? Yeah, we just it's uh I'd be a fool not to. I have fourteen great podcast hosts that do shows on the network every week, all with great knowledge. And I always joke with people if it's just an audience of one and that one is me, so be it. Um, but it's not. We have obviously sixty seven thousand and climbing in seventy four countries, so we gotta be doing something right. Well, I, I always think it's important and I try to live with this model. And obviously, sometimes you get a little frustrated, but uh, I think the key is to uh, always know what you don't know. It, yeah. it, 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 it provides you with a little bit of the humility and, and self-effacement, right? That's what we're yeah, looking yeah. for. So it's a stoic principle right there. Now, with we, 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 have, we pick up a lot of new listeners each work, week with your show. I thought it'd be good for you, uh, and, and if you don't mind taking just a, a minute to Explain what your show is about again, what your premise is, what your approach is, because you're not about dictating this is the way or this is the highway. You're about posing questions. You want people to prove you wrong. And I don't mean to steal the thunder, but would you mind doing that for, for a minute just for new audience members? Kind of show them how to use this show. Sure. We, we, we've talked about it a little bit, but I'll put this in context. Um, the research I've done over the last five or six years, <clears throat> excuse me with pitching injuries. Um, and as I mentioned, I've, I'm close to about 600 now as far as evaluating injured pitchers, right? So I, I in, in, in my focus here, I'm coupling that with um, my experience of working with youth pitchers and evaluating the, the pitchers I've evaluated 
over the last 10 to 15 years. And I mentioned I coach high school baseball for 12 years, aside of my personal instruction. And that number is over probably 125. So I, I couple the research um, with my experience working with pitchers, the results they've gotten um, and uh, regarding the adjustments they've made uh, that have made them uh, healthier and more successful pitchers. And I take that and I look at what I see, read, and hear, uh, meaning what I read and see and hear from general managers, pitching coaches, pitches, et cetera. Because then I pose, and as we continue to talk about, and I've done in the past, I have questions. And those questions I pose are based upon my experience and my research. Uh, and I'm not saying I am right. Uh, I believe I am right. And I believe that I have the information and in the, in the, in the, in the um and the consensus in my research and experience to support that. But as we said before, uh, I think it's important to always pose questions and say, this is what I see. These are the reasonings for it. How am I looking at this the wrong way? How do I need to look at it differently? What am I missing here in the pieces of the puzzle that I'm trying to put together? So as we talk, the podcast really for me is an opportunity to pose questions and uh, hopefully uh, try to get some answers. Because that's, as I said, that's how we learn, right? That's how we learn. That's it. And I and, and don't want to get any details out about this, but just so our audience knows, along with our other podcasters, but specifically Jim here, is, is getting an awful lot of positive attention about the research that he's being put out there, the narratives that we've shared on the podcast. So um, it's gaining some traction. And what, what I like about it is uh, maybe the powers to be are listening and will utilize some of your great research to fix uh, these issues that we have, these billion dollar injury issues that go from generation to generation. So you have a solution, seem to have the ear of the right people and let's just keep moving forward with it. Yeah. So. And, and, and that's great. Uh, I think that, so your listening audience understands what, what drives me here and what's my concern uh, is not necessarily how major league pitchers throw the baseball. My concern is, and this this is based specifically on my experience for the last 15 years uh, in doing motion studies where I take 15 to 20 pitchers at a time and evaluate them. My concern is that 17-year-old pitchers, 16-year-old pitchers, 14-year-old pitchers are believe they need to throw like major league pitchers and are taught to throw like major league pitchers. That's my concern, and that's why I'm presenting and we're speaking about this information. Because I'm concerned about the youth pitcher who doesn't have the ability at this stage of the game to make a uh, intellectual decision and an emotional decision as far as what he has to do and has, how he has to approach the development of his career. And that's really the bottom line for me. Yeah. So we, the, the first order of business we were going to talk about was young Jordan Hicks. Oh, yeah. I was going to bring that up. I, you know, we talked about it before regarding velocity. Well, they all talk about Jordan Hicks throwing 100 miles an hour. And uh, we talked about then in combining that with the concept of pitching, where it's command change of speed, movement and velocity in that order. And the most important thing a pitcher does can do for as far as getting a hitter out um, is uh, impacting their timing. OK, and you talk to any hitter, that's the biggest, biggest issue. And I've talked to hitters that I played with professionally. Uh, really good hitters and said, you know, they've said point blank, I'm not concerned about the pitcher who throws 95. I'm concerned about the pitcher who throws 92 and has a great changeup. I'm really in trouble if he's 95 and has a changeup, right? So that's it. So I thought about this. 
let's look at Jordan Hicks. I'm just picking, I'm using him because we spoke about him last week. Let's put Jordan Hicks on second base and say, Jordan, you're going to rear back and throw the ball and you're going to pitch the ball and you're pitching the ball to the catcher 120 feet away. Well, that ball is going to come out of his hand with TrackMan and StatCast at 101 miles an hour because that's what he's tracked today. Okay. So my question is one, how fast is that ball going when it crosses the plate? But that's not what I'm getting to. Now let's take Jordan Hicks and say, you know what? You're a little league pitcher. You're going to get on the 45-foot mound, and you're going to throw to a major league hitter. It's going to come out of his hand 101. Well, when that ball crosses the plate from 45 feet, it's coming in a lot faster than if Jordan threw from 120 on second base. And the reason I picked that, I, I speak to that is because it's timing and it's your eye's ability to perceive and then the timing issue so you can square on the ball. Makes sense, right? So now let's put him back on the major league mound at 60 feet. The ball's coming out of his hand at 101, still coming out at 101. What's the most effective way for Jordan Hicks or any pitcher to impact the timing of the hitter? The answer is off speed, throwing a changeup. So here's, we talked about questions. Here's my question. And we've talked about this several times regarding the ability to change speeds and the regarding the ability to upset a hitter's timing. I don't know. My question is why are starting pitchers allowed to be promoted without being able to throw a changeup? And I know that for a fact, I've talked to some former managers. We've, you know, obviously it's, it's gotta be a fact because there's out of what there's 15 times 3,500 major league pitchers. What five seven percent eight percent throw a changeup? Um, if I'm the director of development for a major league organization, I'm going to be dead honest. If I sign a pitcher and he's 18, 19 years old, and he's got significant upside. He does have some heat. He throws 94, 95, whatever that number is. I do not promote him unless he can show me and the pitching coaches that he can throw a changeup. And he can throw a changeup for strikes. He can throw a changeup ahead in the count. Because as a pitching coach or a director of development, I'm looking for pitchers who can get hitters out. If I'm a starting pitcher, the best way for me to get a hitters out is to combine my heater with the ability to upset a hitter's timing. So my question is, why aren't they teaching starting pitchers in the minor leagues to throw changeups? Yeah, I wish I had that answer for you. It's just just, just a question. So I'm going to tie that in because <laughs> I think this is really interesting. We talked about velocity, right? I'm going to tie this into a study. I tell, we've mentioned before I've done various studies over the year, years looking at injuries, looking at velocity, et cetera, et cetera. Just, this is your Tommy John study? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. So we talked about, we, for maybe some of your new listeners, we talked about the difference in how they measure velocity now. It's 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 track man stat cast out of the hand versus the older guns, whether it's the Decatur speed gun or jugs gun, five to 10 feet, 15 feet in front of home plate. Um, the difference scientifically is stated between out of the hand to crossing the plate is seven and nine percent. OK, that's the science. So what I did was I was curious. Right. And I and I and I, I got an idea about this because I did look at some specific injuries over the last couple of years with Tommy John and I checked their velocity. 
Well, I had a researcher and I checked. There's been 441, I think is the number. Could be plus or minus a few pitchers, major league pitchers and minor league pitchers who have had Tommy John surgery since 2019. 441. I had the researcher check their fastball velocity. Okay, it's really easy to find. You go on Baseball Savant, you Google it, it's there. Okay, so here's what I found. Out of the 441, she was able to get the velocity readings of 392 of these pitchers who have had Tommy John surgery. Okay, and this is what she found and what she sent to me, which I'm going to present now. I broke it into three categories of velocity, 89 to 92, 93 to 96, 97 to 100. Okay. Out of the 392, 169 of these pitchers presently, as tracked, throw 89 to 92. 190 of these pitchers who have had Tommy John surgery presently, as tracked, throw 93 to 96. 33 of the pitchers throw 97 to 100. So as I said before about the difference, when I calculate this versus 2023 to 1978, 1980, I use a very conservative 5% difference. Okay, I'll go 5%. I'm not going to even go 7. I'll go 5% difference out of the hand versus closer to the plate. I think that's fair. I don't think anybody can argue with me there. So here's my question. Okay, let me back up. I don't have the question yet. If we look at StatCast today with today's technology, that says 43 of the pitchers who have had Tommy John surgery since 2019 throw between 89 and 92. I don't believe anybody would say that's high heat. Another 48% throw 93 to 96. 96 are getting there. But once again, I don't think anybody's going to look at 96 and go, wow, you know, that's a lot of gas. 9%, 97 to 100, 9%. Now, here's the caveat, the but. As you talked about several podcasts ago, there's always a but. If I take the readings off of the Decatur or Jugs gun just at 5%, well, that 43% goes to 85, 88. Okay, we're not even close to high heat. 48% goes to 89 and 92. Once again, I don't think that's close to high heat. Now we get 9%, 93, 95, we're getting closer. So my question is, okay, if these velocity readings, regardless of whether you want to use StatCast, and more significantly, if you want to go back and pair, compare it to your grandfather's reading in 1980, why are they blaming all the injuries, Tommy John surgeries and all the injuries on velocity? That's my question. Well, it's logical what you're saying, kind of taking you back to the the first part where the emphasis would be on pitching. That to me, the indication of you know teaching a kid a change up early on gets them in that mindset of it's more than just barreling people over and throwing hard. What, I mean, what if any pushback have you gotten in, in, in regards to that research? What are, pitch, what are, some, what are some of the pitchers saying, I guess? That's yeah, no, no. Here's the, here's the um, I, I don't want to even use the word impact, uh, pushback. Here's the response I've gotten. Okay, we talked about this last podcast. 
is that pitchers do not want to sacrifice velocity for arm health. Okay. I get that statement, but then my response would be, well, a lot of these guys don't even have velocity. They're still getting hurt. So those are, those are two separate conversations. I don't like to conflate conversations. I like to separate them. Okay. I'll, I'll address the first one first. Pitchers don't want to sacrifice velocity with, for arm health. Okay. We're jumping ahead, but I, since you asked the question, I'm going to speak to this, right? I'm going to look here for a second. If you don't mind, I'm going to find, I have this here. Okay. So here's the deal, right? When I said before, I have questions and answers. I have questions looking for answers. And the questions are based on a lot of the pictures I have worked with and their success. I'm going to read you some comments from pictures I've worked with, high school and college pitchers in the last couple of years. These comments just have to speak about velocity. I'm not even going to address their arms feel better. They're throwing strikes. They get a better curveball. I'm going to address the velocity issue. Okay, here's the first one. Gavin Jay. He's an 18-year-old high school pitcher in Connecticut. I feel what we worked on is easy to follow and definitely makes a lot of sense. I definitely feel more pop and velocity on my fastball. Charlie S., a 17-year-old high school pitcher in Connecticut. What we work on, what we work on makes sense, very easy to follow. I have gained velocity. Ryan B., a 17-year-old high school pitcher in Connecticut. The drills are simple to follow and can be done anywhere. They're very helpful. The adjustments are not hard to make. My max velocity has increased three miles per hour since I started working with you. Okay. Here's Ryan B. Okay. He's was Alex P's American Legion, Legion catcher. Alex was a 19 year old college freshman. I caught Alex before our first summer game. I had worked with Alex for two weeks. I noticed he was throwing significantly harder. And the last one from a college pitcher who was the conference pitcher of the year in his conference. The adjustments I made in my throwing motion helped me to improve my lower half ball timing. Now, for your new audience, that's what we've been talking about a lot, about the kinetic timing and the ability to maximize the use of your lower half. He continues, after making the adjustments, my throwing motion feels smoother and I am throwing harder. So to answer your question, here's my question. What impacts and benefits a 17 or 18-year-old who throws anywhere from 85 to 88? People don't feel that will impact and benefit a 27-year-old who throws 95 or 96 or 92 or 93. Once again, my question, based on my experience and the results I've been able to generate with pitchers, trying to understand that original statement that I've gotten from several people that says pitchers do not want to sacrifice velocity for arm health. That is my question. Yeah, that, that, that's logical. Then why, why are pitchers so drone-like and won't fight back on this stuff? Because we see it on social media all the time where they're whipping heavy balls, they're, they're doing some sort of run up and throw, and then they look at the, the monitor, everybody takes their shirt off and jumps around when it hits a certain velocity. I mean, that, what you're saying is logical. They don't want to sacrifice arm health for velocity, but we see them do it all the time. Well, yeah, that, that's true. <laughs> and l- let me give you a little anecdotal quick, you know, quip here. 
uh, I've read many articles about pitchers who are lifting weights and et cetera, et cetera, throwing throwing weighting balls, and we'll talk about those a little later with a couple of the pitch, couple of the pitch, couple of the pitchers. I'm sorry, I did not start lifting weights until I was I was thinking about this the other day until I was 42, 43 years old. I certainly did, now, and that's when I maybe that's when I started doing some deadlifts and squats. Okay. As I mentioned before, uh, you know, I don't like telling war stories, but I threw in the low 90s and was clocked at 94. This is how I worked out to get ready for spring training. Now, some of you probably don't have not played this, but we played racquetball. Okay, anybody knows about racquetball? It's, you know, it's in a small, you know, contained area. So I played racquetball. I played cutthroat with two friends of mine from high school who also signed. One signed with the Pirates and one signed with the A's. So we'd go in there and beat the garbage out of each other for two hours playing cutthroat racquetball. Okay. You against two other guys, balls flying, bodies flying all over the place. We do that for about two hours. Then I convinced them to jump in the pool and we'd swim a mile. That was my workout in the off season to pitch. Now I got injured. Okay. I didn't injure my arm because I didn't deadlift. I didn't injure my arm because I didn't throw a weighted ball. I didn't injure my arm because I didn't long toss three times a week. I injured my arm because no one was able to, as I said before in a previous podcast, tell me why I was opening up my front shoulder and how I could correct it. First of all, back then I talked to Jim Cott, you never saw yourself throw. If I had seen a video of myself throwing, I maybe could have figured it out. Okay. So we talk about this velocity myth. I could say the same thing for a lot of guys that I pitched with in high school and college. Um, I don't understand it. So my question, we talked about questions. Why do they feel that they need to weight train and they need to throw weighted balls and they need to long toss two to three times a week to gain velocity? Well, like you used this analogy before. We don't see that in other sports. We don't see a football quarterback throwing a weighted ball at least I don't think oh I worked with quarterbacks for 12 years I never had a quarterback throw a weighted ball to learn how to throw the football I'll give you yeah you're talking about funny stories I had two or three quarterbacks that had elbow pain and I go coach my elbows hurt me I go well we, we need to look at the way you're throwing okay you're dropping your elbow you're swinging your hips you're practically open before the ball comes through let's do this let's get a little athletic and let's get your shoulder to the target so we worked on a couple of drills. A week or two later, how's your arm feel? I don't have any more elbow pain. Once again, sure, people can say that's anecdotal, but my questions are based on my experience of actually working with athletes. As we talked before, when I coached for 12 years, I coached basketball, football, and baseball. So I worked with a ton of athletes individually and in, t- and in, and in, um, in practice across the board and teaching them how to move athletically. Whether it was a baseball player, it was a hitter, a pitcher, a basketball player, a shooter, a cornerback, a quarterback, a linebacker, whatever. It was all about learning how to move athletically and use your lower half athletically to maximize your performance and minimize your risk of injury. That's what we're talking about here. Yeah. No, it's, it, it makes a lot of sense regarding that. Now you, you and teaching it now. And now we, we always get to the teaching point. Um, feed into that. You talked. You, you talked about the the research 
we've heard from what people are saying. What's the two step method that you you employ that would teach your arm pack? <laughs> yeah, we talked. We started last week, and we talked about. You know, one first thing I did was when I when I looked at a picture, you know, I share a video with him and his dad. We talk about what I see, um, and and my experience working with other pitchers who throw the same way and what their results were if they didn't make changes and what the results were if they made changes, right? Because you're looking to give, uh, you're looking to educate, but you're really giving, you're looking to give people information so they can make a value decision for themselves. Uh, I'm not putting a gun to anybody's head when I meet them and I'm not selling them anything. I'm just providing them an opportunity for them to make an evaluation of what I'm talking about and whether they feel that will benefit them, right? So the first thing we talked about last week was how do I get pitchers to go to the target? Right? How to use their lower half correctly? Well, the, the second step is how do we create a healthy arm path? Because the majority of youth pitchers I work with who mimic professional pitchers is that their arm path is way down behind their back and some have it below their, their back leg and knee. Well, if it's a timing issue, it takes a long time for that arm to get up and around. And we talked about before that arm has to be in a specific specific position with your lower half in a specific position to maximize the use of your body and reduce the stress on your arm. So we, you know, we work on the arm path. I have arm path drills. We play catch. I try different things. I get them to understand what it feels like to create a relaxed, loose arm path that could be a really large loop, but it's up and around and through, as we said before, it's with three relaxed hinges. It's a relaxed wrist, it's a relaxed elbow, and it's a relaxed shoulder. And when I talk to these and work with these pitchers, all these 15, 16, 17-year-old pitchers are like statues. It's amazing to me how stiff they are in their upper bodies. Sometimes when I stand behind a pitcher and I help them to try to create the arm path, I can't move their arm, there's so much resistance. So the first step that I try to do with them is to take a deep breath and relax and say, you're not looking to muscle this ball. You're looking to create a relaxed arm path. Okay. We talked about it before. The lower half is the engine. The arm is just a steering wheel. It goes along for the ride. Well, these guys, for all these pitchers I begin to work with, their upper half is the engine. And because of that, they don't have three relaxed hinges. Some of them only have one. Okay. So that's the first thing is the challenge of getting these youth pitchers to relax where they don't think they have to muscle the ball. So that's really the second teaching step. That's the second teaching step. And it's block by block. You know, if, if we're working on the lower half and he's, the pitcher's still struggling, I might introduce the second step at the end with some drills to take home because we all talked about this. All the drills I give them are in front of the mirror. They don't have to throw a baseball to learn to throw, throw the baseball correctly. But I will continue to work on the lower half. And if they start complaining, I go, okay, fine. Are you doing the drills? No. Well, then the more you do the drills and the quicker you learn this, we can move on to the second step. I don't teach, you know, seven times seven until somebody can add two plus two. It is no different with teaching, uh, with with any type of teaching or instruction, whether it's albeit athletics or any other, you know, academics, anything. Um, and the last point that I do make to all these pitchers and their parents is that, and I play the piano, I took lessons years ago from a jazz pianist, is that this is a piano lesson I'm providing. This is really important so they understand. Okay. If I, if we work on a song 
in two things. If you go home and don't practice and you come back, number one, you're wasting, most importantly, your parents' money. Number two, you're wasting your time. And number three, last but not least, you're wasting my time. Number two, and this is really significant in the difference between working hard and working smart. And I remembered this when I was taking piano lessons. Inherently, people want to practice what they do well. So if you have a piano song and there's a section you don't practice, you don't keep going back to the beginning and playing half the song that you play well. You go to that part and you break it down and get that correct and then incorporate that into what you do well. So inherently in working with athletes across the board in all three sports, and I think this is important for your youth listeners to listen to, is that you need to practice hard, but more importantly, smart. You need to focus on what you don't do well and take that part of the song when you go home and try to work on correcting that and then incorporate that into what you do well. Most of the athletes I have worked with until they understand the process do not do that because they don't want to embrace failure and they want to do something they do well. So they repeat it over and over again. And when they come back, they have it improved because they haven't worked on their deficiencies. That's really significant. And, and you had a, again, I, I don't know how this transfers in, but I know you'll fill in the gaps with it. Look at uh, professional lefty Wade Miley. Is Wade Miley a lefty or righty? He's a righty, yeah. Um, this goes under a category of what I read, right, and what I see in observations, right? So I'm going to throw a couple of things out of here because every week I, I, read the, I read the Athletic and I look at the New York Post. I'm up in the Northeast, and I look at MLB.com, and I kind of peruse and see what are they saying about pitchers? What are pitchers saying about themselves, right? So – Three pitchers here I'm going to bring up, right? Once again, questions. I'm not uh, I'm not looking to criticize. I'm asking questions based upon my experience and my research. Wade Miley, okay, his injury history, right oblique, shoulder, elbow, shoulder, lat, elbow. Okay, his career is 108 and 98. He's got a 4.60, 4.60 ERA. But that's not the significant factor for me. I went and checked his fastball velocity, 91.92. Once again, at 5%, that puts him 25, 30, 40 years ago at 87. For your older audience, that makes him John Tudor. And I don't think anybody was going to say John Tudor was a flamethrower. So my question, you have a pitcher like this with the amount of injuries he's had. Okay, I like to refer to him, and I don't mean to be glib, but I call somebody like Wade Miley a one-man mash unit, okay? My question is, are they looking at the way that Miley throws the baseball, or are they blaming it on velocity? Because I always, when I see injured pitchers, and I read about them, and I read about what they're doing or not doing, I look at their, and I evaluate their throwing motions if I haven't done that already in any of my injury analysis. So I take them through the course of their career, and I look at Wade Marley, Wade Miley, excuse me, and go, he's never made any adjustments in his throwing motion. So my question is why? And he's not a max velocity type of guy either. Like you don't see him as a flamethrower. Yeah, I, I, I once again a question. If if he's not, if he doesn't have the gas, my question would be to to the powers that be, and my question is. Why do you feel he's getting injured? 
Now, there could be an answer. I don't have that answer because I look at the way he throws the baseball and I go, that's why he's getting injured. Yeah. And he's had a, he's had a variety of it. You, you termed it a mash unit, a one man mash unit with his right oblique, his shoulder, his elbow, shoulder again, lat, elbow again. Um, it's, it's, it's all severe arm leg and horrendous lower half ball timing. It really comes down to two words, actually three words for me, severe arm leg, severe arm leg. And the, the, the big question you pose here is, you know, again, it happens once, happens twice. And now we're on time number four and five, especially with the amount of money these pitchers are being paid. You, you, you think logically you'd want to figure it out either from a business standpoint or as a pitcher from a pure health standpoint. But we see how it's still these they're being compensated. So it's who, who can even tell? But what um, we've got a guy trying to get back into bigs with Trevor Bauer. Uh, Andrew Miller was lights out setup guy parts of time as a closer. And then you had a comparison with Nolan Ryan and your notes to me were not even close. Oh yeah. It wasn't my comparison. It was their comparison. Once again, you know, it was an article that I read on Trevor Barrow and he's working and he's trying to come back and which is great. Right. I mean, he's looking to resurrect his career. He was over in Japan for a while. Um, but I, once again, I said, okay, let me, let me, let me, let me Google and let me, um, let me research and see what, you know, what they're saying about Trevor Bauer and, how he throws. And I knew where he threw because I did an analysis a couple of years ago. But one thing that caught, that struck me and it caught my eye was that when I was reading about this, because I've also broken down Nolan Ryan's throwing motion and his timing. And um, Andrew Miller was quoted as saying that um, he's not Nolan Ryan, but he throws like Nolan Ryan and uh, that he's trying to copy and uh, and and throw the baseball like Nolan Ryan, and then he said, you know, he's not Nolan Ryan, but he's you know velocity wise, but he's you know, he's a little slower. Okay, that's and I'm paraphrasing. Basically, from from what the article said, Trevor Bauer and Andrew Miller both believe, and Trevor Bauer believed that he was able he's throwing the baseball like Nolan Ryan, right? So I I broke down his motion and I looked at the timing issues that I look at, and I go, it's not even close. Now. The velocity is not even in the same zip code because if we go back and Bauer's been clocked these days at 95, 96, 97, okay, people say he's got high heat. But if you do the 5% difference when Nolan Ryan was pitching and the gun they used to clock him when Nolan was throwing 100 at 42 years old, well, Trevor Bauer would be down to about 89, 90, 91, whatever. And if you shoot the stat cast on Ryan today, you want to say he's at 106, 107, somewhere in that neighborhood. I'm going, okay. So my question is, what would Andrew Miller be looking at? And what would Trevor Bauer be looking at to think that Trevor Bauer throws the baseball like Nolan Ryan? Um, that's my question. Because when I look at those throwing motions, they're not comparable. As far as lower half timing, how he goes to the plate, where his front shoulder is at lower at uh, at early cocking, as opposed to Trowers, Bowers being wide open, and I don't need to get technical here, but they're not even close. And that's my question: What do they see that makes them believe, or what are they looking at that makes them believe that Trevor Bauer throws like Nolan Ryan? Yeah. Now, did you did you? I know you graded our our resident Hall of Famer Jim Cott with his his motion. Did you grade Bauer, Miller, and Ryan? terms of your no I didn't look at I didn't look at Andrew Miller no I didn't look at Andrew Miller yeah I, I I had 
you know, I looked at, I looked at uh, Trevor Bauer and um, he, to me, he throws like the other 600 pitchers I've looked at and the other hundred minor uh, high school pitchers I worked with who many have had arm injuries and they have horrendous lower half ball timing and a severe arm lag. Uh, I could show you uh, off the top of my head, 75 to 100 pitchers who have been injured who throw the ball exactly like Trevor Bauer. Um, Trevor Bauer hurt his back in Japan. I don't know how that happened. And Trevor Bauer might have a career where he never gets injured. Um, and we talked about that before. My intent in, in doing this research or to see how it correlates to youth pitching, I'm not looking for the one individual who smokes two packs of cigarettes a day and doesn't get lung cancer or the other individual who drinks a bottle of vodka a day and doesn't have liver disease. I'm researching and looking at the 99 individuals who smoke two packs of cigarettes a day who wind up having emphysema, lung cancer, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I am, I am never going to make the statement that somebody will definitely get hurt or somebody will never get hurt because we talked about it. Um, uh, the pitching motion is one of the, if, if the most violent motion in sports and it's never about eliminating, it's about mitigating. It's about mitigating. So when I look at pitchers and I evaluate injuries and I look at pitchers who have a certain motion and they all have been injured, I'm going to say to the other pitcher, Hey, you know, you, you could roll the dice and roll a seven. I'm just telling you that see these 150 pitchers here who throw just like you, they've had surgery. They've been in the IL several times. Once again, if I ever had a conversation with somebody about that, I go, here's the information. Here's what I see. Digest it, evaluate it, decide what you want to do. I mean, the, if I had a conversation with a major league or minor league pitcher, it would be no different than me having a conversation with a 16-year-old pitcher. Here's what I see. Here's the results I've gotten. Here's the results of pitchers who haven't made these adjustments. And there's been five in the last four years who said thanks, but no thanks, Mr. Colonel, who have had Tommy John surgery. So the conversation would be the same. I would treat both with respect and go, it's your choice. You know, digest the information. Let me know what you decide. I'm good either way. <laughs> now, there's all these pitching labs. Everybody has a pitching lab now, not just the major league teams, but independent groups what's going on there that these type of questions can't be posed what are they looking at I mean, um, that's that's a question which i've asked several people already because i i have read about pitching labs um they're popping up right every time you read about it, hey you know san diego just opened up a pitching lab uh the mets have a new and improved pitching lab etc cetera, etc cetera. okay great okay what do they do with the pitching labs what are they examining evaluating and assessing and what's the purpose uh, and the focus on a pitching lab, right? So, because um, I evaluate throwing motions of pitchers before they go in, before they go after, comments made about pitchers from the biomechanics specialists, et cetera, et cetera, right? So once again, it's my observation and um, I'm going to couple it with my research. So I did read an article, uh, I think it was in The Athletic, it might've been, or, or MLB.com. There's a quote here um, by the author of the article. It says, in Milwaukee, a pitching lab and a strong group of player development staffers. And I'm going to underscore the word again, development, right? Because I've talked about, about, are they really developing in the minor leagues? Helped unlock the best in several pitchers by incorporating a new pitch, 
changing a shape, or diversifying a mix. With the new pitching lab in Port St. Lucie, Florida, the Mets hope to achieve similar results. The Mets need to get some contributions from their homegrown pitchers. Obviously, this was a conversation about minor league pitchers, their growth and development. This, the writer or the journalist brought this up. Going forward in that article later on, a Mets official was quoted. I do think we have some good arms here. You never know exactly how the finishing of development goes. Once again, I'll underline the word development. You never have enough starting pitchers pitching throughout your organization because there's greater risk of injury here. That is 100% correct. I will agree with that statement right there. So my question, okay, I'm going to couple this with another pitcher, okay? I read the article in The Atlantic about the San Diego Padres' new pitching lab. that They established his pitching lab. And one of the pitchers they brought in was Joe Musgrove, who had broken his foot. And they wanted to make sure he didn't change his motion post the injury versus the prod. They wanted to make sure he stayed with the same motion. That makes sense, right? You always hear about pitchers changing their motion because they're injured and they injure their arm. I get that. It makes sense to me. Well, I looked at Joe Musgrove's motion prior to, okay, and I looked at it after, and it's exactly the same. And as I mentioned before, I injured my shoulder and I was... I, w- I woke up one morning and I couldn't lift my arm off the bed uh, when I was in double A, actually in triple A, I think it was. And I had, I have ghost pains when I look at photos like Musgrove's motion with the severe arm lag that he has that he creates with his throwing motion. So my question is, this is directly to the biomechanics specialists and those who are in charge of the pitching labs. I get it, Right. But according to the definition or the suggestion of the writer, the development staff is there or are looking to incorporate a new pitch, changing a shape, or diversifying a mix. Why wouldn't a biomechanics specialist, after evaluating Joe Musgrove's throwing motion, bring him inside and say, listen, you know, we put all these electrodes on you. We have 400 photos of you, you know, throughout your entire motion. I'm going to show you one photo. See that front side, how open that is with your arm in that position? That's why you're having shoulder problems. Now, he's had two shoulder injuries. Or if he never had a shoulder injury, I would say you're going to have a shoulder injury. Now, whether Joe Musgrove or any pitcher wants to take that information and digest it and say, yeah, that makes sense to me. Let me see if I can learn how to keep my front shoulder closed. That would be his choice. But I don't understand how a pitching lab with a staff of biomechanic specialists who claim that they're looking to keep pitchers healthy and they want to evaluate and assess a pitcher so he stays healthy, how they can look at a throwing motion like Joe Musgrove's. And I'm telling you, I have 200 photos of injured pitchers that look exactly like Joe Musgrove. How he comes out of that biomechanic session and nobody says to him, I think we have an issue here. That's my question. What yeah, would getting back to it? I'm sorry, getting back to it with talking about the Mets, right? But they talk about finishing development, looking at pitchers, evaluating pitchers, these pitching labs. Matt Allen, one-time top prospects, has had two Tommy John surgeries. My question is, 
you have somebody in your organization who is a top prospect. Now, might not have access to the pitching lab, but you certainly had access to motion capture film because I, I got these photos off of YouTube for crying out loud. And I'm going, nobody in the organization thinks that throwing motion is a problem. And nobody in the Mets organization believes that he's had two Tommy John surgeries and his throwing motion has nothing to do with those two Tommy John surgeries. I'd like to know why. That's my question. Yeah. If you were running one of these labs yourself, what, I mean, you don't have to go down the, the, the litany of changes, but what would be two to three things you would adjust? And I know you haven't been inside, turning it inside out, but you're seeing the results. What would be your points of emphasis? Well, number, number one is, um, <clears throat> you know, yeah, I would look at, I, you know, everything to me revolves around lower half ball timing. So I would look to see how significant was their arm lag in three different positions. And I would then say, okay, fine. What's your injury history been? And I'm going to go, okay, let's look at your velocity. The last thing I'd be concerned about is having them develop a new pitch. Now, I'm not saying developing a new pitch, changing a shape, or diversifying a mix is not significant or is not going to impact the pitcher's performance. But the analogy I would make is that you're building a home and you're worried about what curtains you're going to put on your bedroom windows or what furniture you're going to bring into the house or what tile you're going to put on your bathroom floor. And your builders haven't built a strong, stable foundation in the basement. I go, where's the step-by-step priorities here, right? So to be honest with you, okay, those are all fair. How do we get better? Well, I'm gonna get, I'm gonna, we're going to add a pitch. But when that pitcher comes into the lab, and they talk about all these high-tech you know, electrodes they put on and the motion capture film, and they're breaking this down you know, step by step by step, frame by frame. I get it. But I'm going, you've had three injuries. You had an elbow injury. You had a shoulder injury. Let's look at how you're throwing the baseball. Because it goes back to the definition we talked about last podcast. Is your throwing motion placing more stress on your arm or less stress on your arm. Is it, as the definition said, the goal of kinetic timing is to minimize the stress on your arm, not maximize the stress on your arm. So that's what I would look at. First thing, first thing. Now, once again, hey, this is what I see. This is why I think you got hurt. There are other factors, yes. I think you need to make some simple adjustments to, mit- to mitigate your future risk of injury. What do you think? Nah, I don't think so, Jim. Okay, God bless. But I hope you have really good DNA. Because <laughs> I'll show you 600 photos of pitchers who throw exactly like you, and they've all either had surgery or they've been in the IL three times. It's your choice. It's your choice. It's a free country. <laughs> yeah. So now in doing this, we, we've obviously taken current major leaguers. You're locked in on youth baseball, trying to make a difference there. You've worked with high school kids. The big money is these, you know, the – the great unknown is these prospects. Have you ventured into the the prospect list? Even I mean, like taking a look at the top one hundred. If so, what have you what have you found? <laughs> yeah, um, th- there was a list this week um, regarding the top one hundred prospects. So the top fifty had nine pitchers on it, ranking from eleven to forty nine. I will offer this right. I've had people say to me, 
There's no cookie-cutter approach to pitching. They all throw differently. These nine pitchers throw exactly the same, and that's just a small sample. They all throw the same. They all throw the same. But here's the kicker for me. When they say to me, or I've been told, they're looking to gain max velocity. Now, this is really crucial, and I'd like to be able to show a photo, but I want your listeners to understand this. I'll do this. I'll say this really slow. There was one pitcher in the top 50 who's considered one of the best pitching prospects in the last 20 years for his organization. I'm not going to mention his name, whatever. I have a, I broke down his motion. When his hips are fully rotated to the plate and his arm is collapsed behind his head, forearm parallel to the ground, ball facing the sky, his back foot is off the ground. So now visualize this. That ball has to travel to release. It's got to travel probably anywhere from 155 to 165 degrees to release with his back foot off the ground. My question, why would somebody think that way to throw the baseball is the way to maximize velocity? It's beyond my comprehension. No, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, when you're looking at these prospects, that's what they're and you, you said in your notes, nine pitchers in the top 50 you're, you're concerned about that throw the same. Well, there was just nine. I just wanted to take a look. I know what I was going to find, find, right? Now, here's the kicker. Out of those nine pitchers, three have had Tommy John surgery. One's had it twice. So I go, okay, my question, do you look at other pitchers? Do, do organizations look at a compilation of pitching industries or are they just looking through a finite lens of their own pitchers? Maybe not even comparing them to pitchers within their organization. But are they looking at the incidence of injuries across the spectrum of different organizations, albeit minor league teams, prospects, top prospects, et cetera, and saying, there's a correlation here. This is, this is happening a lot. And our pitching prospect, who we just spent $5 million on, throws the baseball exactly like these three pitchers who have had Tommy John surgery. Now, let me add this. If an organization or an owner doesn't care whether he loses a pitcher for a year and a half or two years, it's not my money, Dave. It's not my money. To me, it doesn't seem like a smart business practice. That's just my opinion, right? Especially when you can say, hey, let's make a couple simple adjustments here. And I think it'll, it'll, it'll mitigate your risk of injury and give me more return on my investment. Um, my question, why doesn't that happen? Yeah. Now, you, you read an interesting article on Spencer Strider. Did that give you any hope? Um, oh, that, well, let me, let me back up. The Spencer Strider was, a, was a different issue, but th this is your, you, you made a point about a few minutes ago and for your new listeners who, you know, we're speaking to and regardless of who's tuning into this, I want to reemphasize again that the reason we, or the reason I do this research is, is because of what I've seen 
on the youth level and what they're being taught and what they see and how they believe they need to throw the baseball. And I'll give you an example here. I'll give you an example because it ties into another article I read. Um, They talked about Walker Bueller coming back sometime this year. And I've done some analysis on Walker Bueller. I wrote the Dodgers a couple years ago and said, you know, he's going to have another serious arm injury, but that's besides the point. I took Walker Bueller's motion, throwing motion after his first Tommy John surgery. And then I looked at his throwing motion uh, during his several years with the Dodgers. And then there's a there's a video of him throwing a bullpen session this year down. Are they in Florida, I guess, for for spring training? He has not changed his throwing motion. It's exactly the same, which is fine. That's that's Bueller. That's that's Bueller Walker's decision. He's had two Tommy John surgeries before six. He's had two surgeries. He's only thrown 638 career innings. So I don't feel they can hang their hat on how much he's thrown. Walker Bueller throws 95, 96, somewhere around there, right? You want to say 97? Well, you give him a 5% difference, right? And put him back in 1980. He's 90, 91, 92. I don't think you can blame it on how hard he throws. So what's left? Now, you want to give me four other reasons? You want to say it's climate change? I'm okay. I'm okay. But here's the key. If, if the Dodgers medical staff, the Dodgers trainers, the Dodgers biomechanic specialists, the Dodgers pitching coaches all feel that Walker Bueller's throwing motion has nothing to do with his two Tommy John surgeries. Why would a 17-year-old think he he needs to change how he throws the baseball? Why would an instructor, and there's thousands of instructors around the country, why would they not teach a young pitcher how to throw the ball like Walker Bueller because the entire Dodger staff of experts are saying, The way he throws the baseball has nothing to do or didn't impact his two arm injuries or Tommy John surgeries at all. Because two things happened. Either one, that's the case, or two, they went to Walker Bueller and said, Walker, I think we have a couple issues here. You need to make some adjustments. And Walker, as I said before, said, thanks, but no thanks. I'm good. I'm going to stay with what I have. So my question is, why wouldn't they think that his two Tommy John surgeries were caused or what a significant factor in those two surgeries and injuries were, was how he throws the baseball because Walker Bueller throws the baseball with horrendous lower half timing with severe arm lag. And to my point, that's exactly how every minor league, excuse me, minor league, every high school pitcher, I've evaluated who stepped into any of my motion studies, throws the baseball before I work with them. Yeah. That's my concern. Yeah. I mean, to skip ahead on the strider, I thought possible correlation, young, young star, it kind of in between that, right? He's not a prospect anymore. Oh, but- that's right. I thought the strider thing was funny. It had nothing to do with pitching because a, a writer was writing an article and he talked about the Braves collapse last year. Oh, I right? got you. So I got a, I got a laugh out of that because he was talking to, to Strider and Strider said, you know, quite frankly, we got to change our focus, blah, 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 blah. And I'm going, 
Okay. And this is, this is my bone of contention with MLB anyway. You play 162 games, which is a ultra marathon, ultra marathon, which tests the team that has, and, and you're looking to identify, or what happens is the team, you're looking to identify the teams with the best bullpen, the best bench, the best starting pitcher, the best hitting. All that needs to be incorporated after 162, right? So last year, I think there would be consensus. It would be the Braves and the Dodgers, okay? So now, after the ultra marathon, you're going to have those two teams play teams that finish between 14 and 18 games out in a three out of five series. Okay, I'll give you an analogy. That's like the wild card round in football being one quarter long. One quarter long. So I go, you know what? There was no Braves collapse. It happens in baseball. I mean, more than any other sport. You get cold. You, you, you go 0 for 10. You, 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 know, you have a bad start. When you play three out of five, man, oh, man, <laughs> anything can happen. It's a, it's a roll of the dice and the crapshoot. So I kind of laughed at the article because I go, the Braves didn't collapse. Major League Baseball set up a playoff system where you play 162. Two teams show they're the best, and then you got to put them through a gauntlet where the first round is three out of five. I go, seriously? <laughs> really, they get no advantage. I mean, it, it's been proven. Teams, The wild card team this year was with Arizona going all hey, the way. Hey, you know, whatever. Yeah, you know, kudos to Arizona. But I'll tell you what. I don't know about travel schedules. I don't know about hotels. I don't know about anything. But if you wanted to make the wild card a gauntlet after the season's over, there are no days off. If you want to get in the playoffs being 18 games out behind the Dodgers, I'm sorry. You finish the season on Sunday, you got to throw your number three guy on Monday and your number four guy on Tuesday because that's the price you pay for being a wild card. Now, that makes sense to me athletically from a, from a performance standpoint as a viewer as opposed to, you know what, the season's over. We'll give you a day off. You can set your rotation and then we'll give you another couple of days off before the next playoff starts. Well, then basically the wild card team that's 18 games out goes, hey, why? This is my other question. Why wouldn't owners just build a team to be a wild card team? Because there's really not that much disadvantage in being a wild card team as opposed to the NFL where you got to go on the road for three games. Okay. And even those teams, you know, wind up winning the Super Bowl. So I'm going, I'm an owner. I'm looking to come in second place, you know, 10 games out. I'll spend 50, you know, 50 million less, but I'll get three really good starters. I'll get some hitters. I'll come 10 games out and I'll beat the team that won 110 games in the three out of five because I can play them three out of five and beat them. <laughs> Rest your guys like they do, right? It's, I mean, we're seeing the pattern. It's not like we're bringing up, we're not bringing up stuff that's not happening. It's, there's some intention. There, there's they're being intentional about. It, I think in some regards, where it used to be a badge of honor to win when you're you know your division. It there's, no really, longer- there's really I don't I don't think you know you know they say home field advantage. You know baseball is not the NFL or college football. I mean you know you know Texas goes into Alabama with a hundred thousand screaming Alabama fans. That's not like Arizona going into LA and playing in Dodger Stadium. I'm sorry. The home field advantage in baseball is not even close to football, but so, you know, so, so you go, 
is there really a is there really that much of a downside to being a wild card team as a, as opposed to spending another hundred million dollars to win the division? I go, I don't think so. That's my opinion. And half the crowd in LA is eating at the restaurant in left field or right field or center field, and then get to their seats about the fifth inning. So it's it's a whole different environment with baseball. You're right. Uh, the home field, yeah, the, home, the conversation about home field advantage versus football, college football in the NFL, it's not. You're not even in the same universe. Forget about you know. Forget about zip code. <laughs> so I know you always are. You're you're a reader. So am I. What uh, you've treated our audience each of the last few weeks with. Something that's on your your bookshelf that you're reading right now. What's your what's your book of the oh, week? Oh yeah, this is a book I read last year. Um, really, really great book to change the the subject matter and the topic. But I'm sure everybody's aware of the, what happened in Afghanistan when we pulled out, and you know all these interpreters who basically sacrificed their lives and their families working with um, different um, army and marine units. So this story, this book called Always Faithful is the story about a, uh, a Marine um, major who um, worked to um, get the, his interpreter who worked with his unit out of Afghanistan, he and his family. So the whole story is really about loyalty, commitment, sacrifice. And it's written really well because each chapter alternates. So he'll tell the story from the, from the major's eye and then he'll flip it and tell the same story, but you get the view from the interpreter's eye, the Afghanistan, Afghanistani interp- interpreter, right? And it takes you through the whole, it takes you through the whole story. It's just, it's one of the best books I've read uh, on, on, and on, on Afghanistan and Iraq and, and that whole, um, I'll say genre of that, that whole historical experience, but it's a great story about their relationship and the commitment that this major had with his other sports, with the sport special forces units and other members of the military to uh, work to get these interpreters out of Afghanistan and their families who sacrificed so much for our country. It was a great story. Great story. Do you, and who, do you remember who the author was? Um, hang on one second, okay? I have it here. If you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, bear with me one second. Uh, Well, I can't go. Um, no, I don't. I'm sorry. I'm. So, I thought put I it in did. The show notes. I'll look it up. Put it in the show yeah. notes. Make it easy for our our audience. Well, we've kept you for over an hour today. Um, we appreciate you the information you're providing. And I know you you wear it on oh, your. Oh, sure. I got it. I got it. It's Major oh. Thomas Schuerman. Major Thomas Schuerman. S C H E U R M A N. Schuerman. Good. Save me a little homework today. Sorry about that. that. I did find it. it was down on my on my scroll. <laughs> That's okay. And then um, how do you want to leave the audience today? Um, kind of tie it in a bow. What, what's your, your message of the day, I guess, to kind of wrap it up? Well, with that, um, I think, Jim, Jim, great show today. Um, audience, thanks so much for your support, 67,000. You know, I think if you study Jim's research, uh, you know, guys are getting injured doing the same old thing. They got to start questioning. We talked a lot about that on coaching current and earlier people got to think 67,000. Thanks for your support. Millions. Thank you for handling our marketing merchandise on sale. As of today, it dropped and uh, to jaw bats, RBG at checkout. I'll get you a 
big percentage off on your next maple bat. Sun Tanner's using his, both lefty and righty. Jeff Fry's using his. So RBG at checkout, get you that discount with that. Episode 449, The Real Voices of the Game, The Arms Race, in the books.